Praise God for that. Before we open up God's Word, I'll invite you to pray with me. Lord, thank you for your steadfast love endures forever. You're gentle and patient and kind. You're merciful and gracious. You've given us a Savior where we can find hope and promise and assurance. You've given us that Savior Spirit who lives in us when we read your word and lean into it by faith that produces good things. And so produce good things in us this morning, Lord, for the sake and glory of your own name because you are the only way that the human heart and soul can ever be satisfied. We bless you, Lord, and we hope in you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen? Amen. Well, uh, I'm not sure if you're familiar with this or not, but there is um, a well-known Christian organization, a research organization called the Barna Group. And uh, not too long ago, they conducted a survey with the intention of gaining a better understanding of the current shift in view of the church within American Christianity. And what they discovered was this, quote, that more and more Americans are abandoning the institutional church and its defined boundary markers of religious identity while still believing in God and practicing faith outside its walls. And so uh, what the Barnett Group did in order to understand this shift further was um, interview 1,300 people who um, claimed to believe in Jesus but not so much the church in order to understand why. This group of people had orthodox views of the faith, believed in many of the same things that you and I do concerning God and his word, but uh, still, some way or somehow had arrived at this place of losing faith in the church. And here's, and here's the thing. Um, while um, probably many of these people at one time or another had church hurt or wounds, the research showed that their lack of involvement or commitment to church was not primarily in response to wounds or bad experiences with it, but rather because 90% of them believed that they were able to find God elsewhere and that church was not personally relevant to them. And so um, why would I uh, begin by telling you these things, right? Because you're the ones who are in church this morning. Well, I, I tell you these things and start this way to remind us of the culture and time that we are living in. You see, whether we know it or not as Christians, all the time we are being called and influenced by our world and culture to live individualistic, autonomous lives of faith outside of church and the community that it offers. When things get messy or hard, we tend to retreat. Or when times are busy and are good, we think that we can flourish and grow with God without his people. Um, But actually... This is the opposite way that God intended for it to be. What I want to show us this morning from the scriptures is that individualistic Christianity and or autonomous faith, that which is not actively and or intentionally engaged in the local church is not only illogical, but actually counter gospel. 
In other words, what I want to show us is how God has purposed the local church and its community of believers as the main method and place for growth and assured salvation. Most simply put, the idea is this. There is a unique way that we can find God only in church. Faith may indeed be able to survive outside of church and the community that it offers, but it could never flourish the way that God intended for it to flourish. Why? Because the gospel is this, that Jesus Christ not only died for us to reconcile us to God the Father, but he also died to reconcile us to each other, aka the beauty, necessity, and calling of the church. If you have a Bible or cell phone, please feel free to turn that on or open. We're going to be in the book of 1 John this morning, 1 John chapter 3. Um, Chapter 3, verses 11 through 23 is where we're going to be. If you're following along, you'll see the title of the sermon, The Gift gift and Calling of Love in the Church. The The Gift and Calling of Love in the Church. This morning, from this text, I'd like to show you three things. Number one, our love for each other. Number two, Christ's love for us. And number three, God's promise to keep us. We're going to begin our time together by reading the text up front again. 1 John chapter 3, verses 11 through 23. John writes this. For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. You know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know love, that he, Jesus, laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. By this, we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart, and he knows everything. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive from him, because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. And this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he has commanded us. My brothers and sisters, this is the word of God. Right now we're moving to point number one, and I'd like to show you our love for each other. Well, this morning uh, we find ourselves in the the second half of chapter three. Um, After John last week in the first 10 verses spent time teaching on that glorious uh, doctrine of adoption. Uh, If you weren't here last week, uh, we examined this doctrine of adoption, and this doctrine of adoption is the idea that we as people— Once, before meeting Christ, were orphans, aliens and strangers to God and all of his promises. 
But out of an act of God's free grace, by his own choosing, apart from anything that you and I ever did, in order to reveal his love, he sent his son to die for our sins so that we might be forgiven, reconciled to God, and brought into his family as children. And if you look there in verse 13, what you'll realize is a shift to emphasize this. All throughout this book, John has called or addressed uh, the church as children or little children to express his spiritual authority and or mentorship over the church. But now here, after having gone through the first half of the chapter, elaborating on the doctrine of adoption, what we encounter now from him is a change of address. He goes from calling them children to brothers. In fact, six times in the first eight verses here of this text, he uses the word brothers or brethren to create a familial theme. The word brothers is, is a reference to the body of believers that he is speaking to within his local church. And if, if, if you also notice, there is one big command or instruction that he gives to this church, this family. Verse 11, he says, love, for this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. And in the text, to make his point, he gives the illustration of Cain and Abel from Genesis chapter 4. Cain and Abel were two brothers, descendants of Adam and Eve. And uh, what ended up happening was that Cain did not love God. He gave to God this cheap offering, while his brother Abel gave to God this great offering. And Cain didn't offer anything great to God because he did not really take seriously his sin. And so his offering to God was rejected and his brothers was accepted. And then God tried to reason with Cain and convince him that uh, Abel's offering was accepted not because he was favored. This wasn't a case of favoritism, but because his heart was sour. Instead of repenting and turning to God after God tried to give him a second chance, Abel was filled with anger and hate and chose to kill his brother instead. In other words, there was a conflict of wills within Cain's life before God concerning his sin and loving his brother and his actions became the battleground. John here is using this illustration of Cain and Abel and saying to the family of believers, what I want you to do is learn from this example of what you're not supposed to do. What your relationship with your brothers and sisters is not supposed to be like. In other words, he's teaching them the right thing by showing them the wrong thing. James, this is pretty easy. This sounds pretty elementary. Why do we need to hear this? It doesn't seem like anyone in Parkview Church actually hates one another. Praise God for that. Our church is experiencing a season of harmony and peace. Hallelujah. I pray that it stays that way. But how else then should this text apply to us in the context of failing to love or hate? Well, although many of us may not be tempted to hate one another here, might I remind you of how excellent and high and beautiful and pure is the command that John gives to the church here to love? Did you know that outside of hate itself, that one of the strongest things that opposes the work and presence of the gospel in the church is indifference? Like not really feeling one way or another about the person you're sitting next to? In fact, this is the whole reason why the church of Laodicea in the book of Revelation was rebuked. 
a mediocrity, a lukewarmness to the presence of the gospel within church community. You see, hating one another is not the only way of failing to reach the mark of love. Avoidance is another one. A lack of pursuit or taking initiative or feeling apathy towards brothers and sisters in church is another one. Being critical or judgmental of those in church is another one. When the church gets out and the service is dismissed, running for the hills in order to avoid or dip or dodge God's people is another one. John is saying to this church here in this letter, hey church, what I want you to know is that you are not a random group of strangers or people, but you are a family of believers, a spiritual family that has been reconciled to the Father and given each other. Did you know that the, that the Spirit is thicker than blood? Let me remind you that you do not belong to the world, but you belong to each other. God has intentionally chosen and gathered you to be his people, and his people are called from the scriptures to be one. And if you're really loving the Lord, living a life of holiness and mission, what you'll know beyond a shadow of a doubt is that the world does not accept us. The world does not like us. In fact, the world from the Bible plainly speaks of, uh, of it hating us, being hostile to us. It's hard to be a holy and righteous Christian in a pagan world. Therefore, the souls of the faithful are hungry for God and his people, his chosen people. His chosen people, the church, is what we are made for. Why? Because it is a place where we carry and hold the same gospel yoke and like-mindedness. The church is the place and the gift that God has given to his people where we can be encouraged and spurned on towards holiness and righteousness, mission and kingdom things. This is the blessing of salvation, not only through Christ the Father, but the family of believers in the church, a.k.a. the children of God. You remember what Jesus said in Mark chapter 3 when he was sitting there with his disciples and those uh, wretched sinners as he was calling them to himself? His mother and brother thought he was crazy. They were opposing his ministry. And so they gathered outside and a group of people came to Jesus and, and said, Jesus, your, your mother and brother outside. What did Jesus say in response? Who's my mother? Who are my brothers? Then pointing to the disciples, he said, here are my mothers and here are my brothers. For whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother my sister, and my mother. Church, look around. This is your spiritual family. You are not sitting next to strangers or ordinary people, but brothers and sisters and mothers and fathers in Christ whose names have been written in the book of life with whom you will be with Christ in heaven forever with. And you might know the person sitting next to you and that might freak you out or turn you off. Don't worry. Um, heaven is going to be beautiful and perfect. That's coming. The commandment that you and I received from God's word this morning is to love. 
And if you are a Christian living for Jesus Christ in this world, what you'll also know beyond a shadow of a doubt is that this world is not our home. How? For the faithful? You often feel misunderstood. You often feel rejected. You often feel unloved. Maybe even spurned. Therefore, this church, this place, should be a safe haven for the people of God. One of care, one of mercy, one of love, one of pursuit, one of invitation, one of hospitality, one of community, one of service. Why? Because deep down, God has purposed this for the beauty of holding our salvation. But what um, ends up happening down the line is that you and I eventually forget it or shy away from it. Why? Because of our selfish sin or sin that has been done to us. And so instead of taking the risk to love, we gravitate uh, instead towards self-preservation or protection. We instead stay in our comfort zones or gravitate towards those we know or keep to ourselves. But love, Jesus-like love, it's vulnerable and risky, but it's necessary. Why? Because it's the way that he loved us. Therefore, it's the very thing that you and I are called to in this church. One of the greatest burdens that I carry as a pastor, pastoring in the American church, is battling Number one, a consumeristic mindset about church, which says I come to church in order to be served. And number two, battling autonomous or individualistic practices of the gospel. Trying to get Christians to see that they cannot live or flourish before God without his people. It is so hard because our world says do everything your own way. But James, I am. But I got a group of Christian friends outside the church That's awesome. But James, I belong to a Christian group of people and converse with those people online and social media platforms all the time. It helps me. Praise God for that. But James, I worship and read my Bible and sing songs with my family at home. Praise God for that. But guess what? It's not the local church. It's not the local church. And when I say local church, I mean the specific body of believers given to Parkview Church here in this place. To ordinary, unimpressive, I include myself, awkward people where anxiety is real, brokenness is everywhere, and grace is necessary. My brothers and sisters, this is, this is the church. And guess what? Jesus says she's beautiful. In fact, she's made so beautiful by his blood that Christ not only loves us and is committed to us, but calls us his bride. And so I ask you in application of this text, are you loving the people in this church? Are they your primary call? Who are you getting to know? Who are you caring for? Who are you interacting with, pursuing, welcoming? What role are you playing? Do you see this place, Parkview Church, as beautiful? Do you 
see Parkview Church as the Savior sees Parkview Church called beloved and blessed. You see, Jesus sees you and I in all of our mess and sin and says, I'm committed, I love you, are beautiful and blessed so that we might be able to look at the imperfect church. Indeed, side note, there is no perfect church. And we might be able to look at his imperfect church made up of seniors and imperfect people and say, beautiful and blessed. I want those people. Our prayer should be, Lord, fill me with love for your people. For people who are not like me, who don't think like me, act like me, talk like me, have hobbies or interests like me, that I might give my life away to them so that in my selfless pursuit of them, you could show me just how far wide and deep and how great that extent you went to which to love me. And then we know the power of the gospel. John is saying here in this passage, Do you want to know if you're a real Christian? A born-again, spirit-filled, Christ-centered, gospel-embracing believer? Verse 14. Then look at your love for the brethren and body of believers in your local church. This is how you'll know if you're living a biblically faithful life as a Christian. Hallelujah and amen. Sometimes I make hard transitions. Sorry, we're moving now to point number two. (laughs) That was our love for each other. I'd like to now show you Christ's love for us. If you look down there in verse 16, John, he uh, he says these words. By this we know love, that he, Christ, laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. This is uh, pretty much the the most clear and straightforward way that this lesson of love can be taught. What John is doing here is not just pointing to the whole life and ministry of Christ, which indeed is an example of laying his life down. But this is a, this is a, an illustration, a, uh, um, an example um, of Jesus's um, work on the cross. The cross is where Jesus's selfless life that was laid down was ultimately portrayed and shown to us. The cross is the place where Jesus suffered and died for our sin as a sacrifice so that you and I as sinners can be given grace and then brought to true life. And so what John has done in this letter is said that this is how we know God the Father's love through the cross of Christ. But what he's doing here is saying this is how you are also called to love. Here's the example. Here's the model. Here's the role. So you would exactly know what it would look like, and feel like, and be like. And so what I want to do is just stop for a second and ask you a question. And that question is this. Um, I pray this never happens. Um, uh, but if you were in, put into a situation to, to die for your faith, would you? Like given the rare circumstance or situation to renounce Christ and live or declare God in the gospel and die, which would you choose? I hope your answer would be to stay faithful and die. Um, If it is, I want to take you a step further into this idea of dying for Christ. Did you know that dying for Jesus isn't something that only martyrs face on the mission field, but something that every faithful Christian 
man, woman, and child is, is presented with and given the opportunity to do daily? What do I mean? Well, I'm not, I'm not talking about physical death. What I'm talking about is a death to self, a death to our own agendas and our own temptations to pursue and build our own lives and our own kingdoms, chasing after our own dreams and aspirations for the sake of Jesus and his church. I'm talking about a death which consists of using all of our time, treasures, and talents, that song that we just sing, sung, not for our own selfish gain or advantage, but for Christ and his church expressed in love for his people. James, why would I ever want to do something like that? Great question. Sounds illogical, right? Um, sounds painful. Sounds morbid. Why would anyone ever want to take me or Christ up on this invitation to come and die? Here's the answer. Because when a Christian dies to self for the sake of God and his people, it is here and only here where he or she is able to live. Do you remember what the Apostle Paul said to the church concerning his own life? You know those famous words. To live is Christ and to die is gain. For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he, Jesus, died for all, that those who live might not longer live for themselves, but live for him. Paul didn't make that up. John here is not making this up either. This comes directly from the teaching of the Savior, who in Matthew chapter 16 said these amazing kingdom words. Hear the words of your Savior. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and for the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? How does this idea of Christ-like love and the previous point of church community intersect? Here in this passage, in every way. If a person is not connected or committed to the local church, how can he or she love like Christ those who are in it? They can't. It isn't possible. The only way for us to apply John's words of loving each other like Christ is being connected to the family of believers in this local church. I'm pushing back on that false gospel of American Christianity that creates holy huddles outside the church to do their own thing. It ruins the local church. It pushes back on her. We're trying to do this here. And what John is doing is being a realist because look at the illustration that he's giving us. It's the illustration of the cross. What is the cross? It is the death instrument of the first century. It's where people die. And John's saying, do you want to love the church? Go die for her. Go die for those people in your local church that are ordinary and seemingly unlovable. with humility and suffering and selfless service so that Jesus Christ in all of his glory can be her head and exalted king.
And I know that it's statistically impossible for our church to reach this, but I don't think it's impossible for God. For everyone in our church actually to live like this. I long for the spirit to move because I know words do nothing. I could preach till I'm blue in the face. That won't change anyone. So I need the spirit of God to move. And so I pray that he moves through this. When are you going to love the local church? Jesus said to Peter in John chapter 21, do you love me? Yes, Lord, you know I do. Then feed my lambs. Again, Peter, do you, do you love me? Lord, you know I love you. Tend to my sheep. Christ said again, Peter, do you love me? He said, Lord, you, you, know, I, I, you know everything. You know I love you. Then feed my sheep. This conversation happened after Christ was crucified. The Savior, the Messiah, was teaching Peter how to live his life for the local church. By this, we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. Did our Savior die? Indeed, he died then we should die for each other. We had this men's night out a couple weeks ago. It was really good. Bunch of guys uh, doing their thing next to the cornhole boards, you know. There's like five, six, seven of them. The games were great. I might blow your mind here when I say this, but do you know what the, game, uh, what the, what the goal of a cornhole game is at a men's night out? It's uh, connecting with um, men. Uh, winning comes at a close second, but it's actually not winning. <laughs> men. Intentionally connecting with men. That's the goal of the night. Facilitating, cultivating community so you can connect with people and we can connect people to each other for the sake of love. And, um, you know, we have this fifth Sunday of the month potluck every few months. Do you want to know what the goal of that potluck is? It's not food. It's people. And so, from the text, we move into the fifth Sunday of the month potluck with the mind of Christ. Ask him, Lord, would you please show me where to sit? With whom to sit? Who's new? Who's needy? Who's alone? Who needs a friend? That's how you practice mission in the church. by pushing away our own selfish, self-preservative agendas and saying, I want to live for you as I die for these people. Use me to build your church. And Aguavera in 1910 makes some really great competing lunches. We all know that. But uh, we do that here. And guess what, guess what happens by the Holy Spirit when we live and think like this as we move into church events and community and times with each other? This is amazing. It's supernatural. It only happens in the life of a Christian. The Holy Spirit comes and awakens our souls where we begin to lovingly and affectionately desire each other. And they go from looking like ordinary people who we don't know, strangers, to brothers and sisters who are worth dying for so that we might know and enjoy the Savior. 
One man, one comment in one commentary said this. The love of Christians is seen not merely in general love for all mankind, though they have that also, but rather in particular love for the brethren. If Christians really do love one another, then they will not spend so much time criticizing one another, as often is the case. They will not abandon the assembling of themselves together with the su while substituting some kind of private religion. They will not neglect one another's needs. Instead, they will find themselves uniting in a spiritual fellowship in which the Lord is worshipped and they themselves are mutually encouraged in the Christian life. My brothers and sisters, the love of Christ cannot be known apart from death. But it is through dying for one another, through selfless service and love, that we were able, are able to know God and build the church. Amen? That was point number two, Christ's love for us. I'd like to finish our time lastly in point number three. And I'd like to show you the greatest and uh, awesome gospel, the most promise. It's God's promise to keep us. If you look there in verses 19 through 23, John here in the last section of this text basically takes all the imperatives found in this high calling of love and fuels them with grace. And point number one, he said, do something, love. Point number two, he said, do something, love like Christ. But then if you look there in verse 20, what you'll see is John's honest and open dialogue about his own personal and inward struggle with this. He says this, for whenever our hearts condemn us, God is greater than our heart. The apostle John struggles with condemnation just like everyone else. Why? Because the true Christian knows how high this call of love is and how no one has come close to meeting it. And so there's a real temptation to feel depressed or condemned in our faith practice before God as we seek to love him and each other. No one does it perfectly. But if you look there in verse 21, what John is doing is fighting for their confidence before God. How does he give it to them? by reminding them of God's grace for them in Christ. What I want us to recognize here is that this whole passage is a response to what Jesus has already done for the church. In other words, Christ's sacrifice is to be our confidence and justification before God as forgiven and loved. This is the second time in the book that the word confidence has been used. And the first time it was in the context of judgment as we all stand before God on the day of judgment with confidence through the merit of Christ. Who has met this great demand or expectation or high call of love? Jesus. The great gift and grace of this text is that God has given to us, his people, a savior to keep and assure us. What does that mean? It means perfection does not hold this body of believers up, but grace, mercy, and the gospel does. And Jesus died not only to forgive our sin, but as the first fruits of his resurrection, he also died to give us his Holy Spirit, who is the way that we are actually able to desire and practice this love. This type of love? 
is not desirable. It's not achievable. You can't do it without the Spirit of Christ. This is scandalous love. This is illogical love. This is counterintuitive love. Who would ever die for the sake of God's gain without an agenda of self-promotion? Only the faithful who are found in Christ, whose all their hopes, aspirations, dreams, and desires, hope of life itself, are found at the gates of heaven. You see, God's law is no longer a law of oppression for the Christian who's been filled with the Spirit of God. It is a law which per, per, presents us an opportunity to obey where we find God and the flourishing life of other people through obedience. You and I are able to share with Christ and his desires for the church because we know him and have been united to him. What is his desires for the church? That she be holy, that she be beautiful, that she be strong, that she be built up with discipleship and the preaching of God's word, the administration of the sacraments, Christocentric Bible studies, missional people who live for the sake of the lost, an outward facing church. And so as we stumble and fall, and strive towards this great command and high call of love. We have a Savior who has already saving, saved us. It is not love to be loved. It is loved because you are loved and were loved past, present, and future tense forever. There's no law that we have to come to church on Sunday morning. You're free. I'm just saying, after examining in a gospel like this, how could we not? I'm not saying you can't miss church, take a family vacation or a, a day to be away. I'm just saying before you make the choice, you should consider what you're missing. You're missing Christ, his people, and an opportunity to be loved and love. We have brothers and sisters across the world right now in communist countries who are gathering in small rooms with no instruments, sitting on the floor, passing around one Bible and risking their lives to do it. Why? Because they know and love God. You see, our understanding and practice of church reveals our understanding of God's love and the salvation that he is working in us, his people. I'd like to finish in verse 22, which you'll see, John is talking about prayer. He's talking about prayer, asking and receiving things from God through obedience and pursuing his will. And verse 22 is actually a, a repeated teaching from John in his first gospel work in chapter 16, when Jesus taught himself and said these words, I tell you the truth, my father will give you whatever you ask in my name. Until now you have not asked anything in my name, Ask and you will receive and your joy will be complete. In this context of the church, thriving and being built up in Christ, I'm asking you if you would commit yourself to a season of prayer for this church. I'm just gonna be like open with you, right? Because you're here with me and you're seeing it. The church is turning over. It's growing and there's new life coming. Would you pray for her, us, that we would be a community like this? not dependent on programs or events to do community, but dependent on the God's love sparked in us by the presence of the Holy Spirit where others might be welcomed and cared for. Join me as I seek to connect people to other people so we make this place a community.
This is how we engage and embark on mission, practicing hospitality and giving grace. I pray that you would follow me and the session of elders and deacons as we follow the Savior. Give your life away to this church. So inevitably you would give your life away to Christ and Christ would be lifted high and we, his church, could smell, look, act, think, breathe, and live like him for the sake of his glory until his return. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. It never goes out and returns void. Oh God, thank you for loving us. For your elect, those you have saved and who are truly born-again Christians, they know your love and you know them. And so after having received your love in this great scandalous gospel of salvation towards the unlovable, I pray that you empower us to live on mission here in this church, to come here seeking to serve and not be served. And from it, Lord, that you would get all the glory. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.